I think that in general, what the entire shutdown experience has forced people to do is reevaluate how flexible they are. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. It's October, and as usual, the art world is abuzz over the fall crop of new museum and gallery shows opening to the public. What's decidedly unusual, of course, is that these openings are happening against the backdrop of a global pandemic that has completely changed life as we know it. And in fact, the idea that museums are open at all is a kind of small miracle. Now that half a year has passed since the coronavirus shut down New York City, spurring dark predictions of devastation to its art institutions, how have the metropolis's museums and galleries managed to get to this encouraging point? And what changes have they made to survive into the future? To find out, I'm joined on the show today by Artnet News' Eileen Kinsella to discuss museums and by Art Angle fixture Tim Schneider to talk galleries. Thanks for coming on the Art Angle, Eileen. Thanks for having me. Your inbox and mine are both being inundated with these press releases for museum shows. I want to talk to you about these openings and how they've been able to actually proceed. But first, why don't we take a moment to travel back in time six months ago to the early days of the pandemic in the United States. What was the outlook for museums back then in late March? I think it was just a a mood of feeling very grim and very uncertain. You know, you know as well as I do that the way that the New York City lockdown happened was really quick. Businesses and offices started closing and then the order came from Cuomo to have no non-essential businesses open by March 22nd. So that was just a real heavy lift. And there was just so much uncertainty about how long is this going to happen for? I, you know, I remember talking with a curator at the Met in uh, March after they had closed the Breuer and the Met Fifth Avenue. And she said, well, you know, the Gerhard Richter show that we have is on until uh, July. So that's a good thing. And thinking about that in August, I thought, wow, how naive we all were that we thought, yeah, things will be back to normal. Not Maybe not back to normal, but you would certainly have had hope that a show that was on until July might actually reopen to the public. It seemed like that was the the farthest that you could imagine in the future back then. Yeah, and even that seemed so far away and far out. We did a a podcast episode back on March 26th. It was called Three Ways the Coronavirus Will Transform the Art World. And in it, executive editor Julia Halperin said that about a third of museums in the U.S. already are operating close to the red before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that there was an expectation that they would not be able to make it through with these kinds of revenue shortfalls that you you get from the lack of ticketing and also, importantly, from the cancellation of all the incredibly lucrative spring galas that that get their trustees to donate tons of money. Mm -hmm. How vulnerable was the museum world to this coronavirus? Oh, I mean, extremely. You know, they, they're so heavily reliant on on tourists, out of town people coming and paying admission and shopping in the gift shop, and as you mentioned, that the annual spring gala. All of these things are huge to the bottom line. I think many museums are still reeling from it and still trying to assess uh, the damage. And we may not know the real damage until a couple of months out, or maybe next year. Like they're still in a precarious position, and I think we're just going to have to keep a really close eye on it going forward. The Metropolitan Museum of Art was really the bellwether when it comes to museums because they closed early on March 13th, ahead of everybody else. Right. They also predicted that they were going to lose $100 million in revenue. Flash forward to today, 
the museums are reopening. People are starting to go back and to see exhibitions. How much of these dire predictions that people were talking about in March have borne out so far? I don't think they have. You know, we all know how grim the mood was when everything was shut and, you know, just watching things for months. But I don't think this apocalyptic vision of being shut down forever has, has yet happened or that we've seen the kind of numbers that maybe were predicted then. And the mood does feel, you know, very optimistic and encouraging. I think people were really hungry to get back out there, you know, based on my surveys with museum leaders. I mean, it's interesting to note that museums were not on their own during the, the really uncertain days of the pandemic. They actually banded together mm-hmm. into a group of cultural organizations that, that decided to march in lockstep. So c- can you tell me a little bit about the, this group? Uh, a task force of, uh, I think it started with about 15 museums and it, it grew from there. They were all having weekly meetings. They're still having weekly meetings, um, virtual meetings, where they agreed that it was crucial to have uniform standards of safety. So, yeah, everybody's going to have their mask on and they're enforcing social distancing. But it's very crucial for a visitor who, say, goes to the Queen's Museum to see that it's equally safe as it is at MoMA. You know, if you go to two museums, you don't want to see vastly different practices in place. And they also said that, like, you're waiting for guidance from the government and the government tells you, that you can reopen. Well, they're not going to give you guidance on museum headsets and whether or not that's okay to have people paying for a tour guide and and sharing Mm -hmm. that in the age of like stream hygiene. And, you know, that's just one detail of perhaps thousands that they had to think about. They have to think about crowd flow and signage. And so they were all very much um, discussing that amongst themselves and creating this, you know, uniformity of uh, safety standards. And that went a long way towards their comfort level and that comfort level of their first visitors that have returned. So the Met was the first major New York museum to close. And it was also one of the earlier museums to reopen on August 29th. Right. What is it like to visit the Met in the post-lockdown, you know, newly reinvented coronavirus era? Well, as the largest museum in the country with square footage, they certainly don't have a problem with with crowding. You know, even if you go to the Met uh, in high season, probably the most crowds that you would ever encounter there is in that the Great Hall when you first walk in. Mm -hmm. And that's already an advantage. But now they've reduced their capacity. So whereas, say, on a peak summer day, they might have had 15 to uh, 25,000. Now capacity is 14,000. And they're operating at an average of about 5,000 a day. And they're also really have a thoughtful um, structure in place for crowd flow. And like I said, they have the luxury of all this square footage. But even still, they have all these color coding maps that are like one direction or not too many people around an elevator. They also stayed in constant contact with the government, you know, local and state, not to put pressure on them in any way, but just to be in contact with them and say, you know, we're not pushing to reopen, but when you give us the green light, you can be sure that we're doing it and we're doing so safely. And I, and I feel like that was key too. What, what are the kinds of techniques that the museums like the Met are using to screen people and, and ensure that there is safety? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned mask and social distancing and there's, you know, hand sanitizer everywhere. I thought one of the methods that the Whitney came up with was interesting. The CFO told me that on the first uh, reopening day, somebody had come through the vestibule into the lobby and said, where do I get my temperature taken? And she said, you know, you already did because they had a tripod mounted thermal imaging camera that captures in colors if there's anything out of the ordinary with temperatures. So 
yeah, that's just like one example of, of the kind of innovations they're putting in. Then also the Met has timed tickets, which is also key to crowd control. How are visitors thinking about museums in terms of, you know, being excited about going to see exhibitions? That's one thing that's, that somewhat surprised me about the return of the numbers, that there seems to be a comfort level that, you know, it, it, it's as safe as can be if you're going to be outside and around other people. On top of this eagerness to get back out, the Whitney, for instance, is very much doing things to encourage people to come back, like having pay what you wish for the month that they reopened on. Mm. That's a real incentive to get people out. And local audiences really seem to appreciate that effort and that outreach. You know, everybody did polls <laughs> during lockdown. Right. We actually did a very interesting poll where we surveyed 2,000 Artnet newsreaders from 67 countries. And the majority of respondents said that they didn't plan to change their art going behavior at all. So what has this translated into in terms of attendance in, the, in these early days of the reopening? Yeah, for instance, um, the Whitney said that it had drawn 2,700 visitors over the f uh, first five days of its member preview and then more than 500 on the first day of opening. So that's pretty steady. And like, I realize that's just a fraction of what you had before, but, uh, you know, the experience itself and, and everybody has been talking about this need to slow down and engaging with the art. And that's really your goal when you go to museums. I can't think of a better time to do that if you want to see the show you've been wanting to see for months, like the Whitney kept up its Mexican muralist show, you know, which wasn't up for that long before it got shut down. And so anybody who really wants, you know, to see Diego Rivera and all these great Latin American artists can go and have a really much more intimate and slow experience there that they probably could not have had before. You know, it's one of those things where you talk about these unexpected benefits of being forced to slow down and not being able to travel. Like I've heard quite a few people mention that better interaction and experience with the art. And that seems to be being encouraged in this new era that we're living in. But the interesting thing is that the audiences are more local than ever before. I think that the Met used to have the vast majority of its attendance coming from overseas. And I think China was a great source of its footfall, but it was a, a major tourism attraction. Right. It's a complete 180. Actually, if we want to just run the numbers quickly, it used to be that on an average day, 70% of the visitors were from other cities and other countries. And now since the museum has reopened, that number has dwindled to just 20%. So now you've got this captive, concentrated uh, audience of New Yorkers. How is that going to impact the decisions that museums are going to be making over the next couple of you know months? Yeah, or well, um, I had a great talk with Max Holline at the Metropolitan Museum, and you know he was very thoughtful about it. He was just saying like, you know, yeah, it's local and and it's a big shift to adjust to no tourists, but at the same time, your New York visitors are your repeat visitors who who come back again and again, and they have very high standards because they notice everything. They notice changes in your programming and changes in your building, and they have high standards. And so you want to cater to them and you want them to have a great experience, but you're also realizing your constraints. We're not going to have as many blockbuster world traveling uh, loan shows. So one of the key things that the Met is going to be doing is um, looking to its own collection, which are vast, but it will prompt a recontextualization and a reexamination of the works that they have and how best to, you know, present them to a local audience. One show that they have on now is um, to celebrate their 150th anniversary is the kind of show that even though it was already in the works before the, the crisis hit, 
I think it's a perfect example. Uh, it's called Making the Met 1870 to 2020. It's the perfect example of the kind of way that they're going to do deep dives into their own collection so that they can still present great shows and not be dependent on external factors. So just finally, what is the outlook for museums? What, what is the expectation for the next couple of months as we enter this fall that we've been warned about you know, by Fauci, by everybody for such a long time. What is the expectation for the way museums are going to operate into the foreseeable future? Well, I think if I could just talk for the moment, I got the sense when interviewing these people about the reopening that they're just breathing a huge sigh of relief. I think they're taking it, you know, one step at a time. The fact that that consortium of um, something like 20 major institutions continues to meet Wednesday virtually tells you that even though now the reopening is, you know, largely we're past that, they're not just being like, okay, business as usual. It's very much like, yeah, we need to stay on top of this. We need to monitor everything that's going on, monitor, you know, health rates. One of the reps for the Met had said to me, one of the toughest things about getting to the reopening was that the goalposts kept being moved. Like, you know, at first we thought that museums were going to reopen as part of phase two in early July, and then it got moved back towards later in phase three, and then was the end of August. So they've just been doing their best to try to navigate all this changing information. So, you know, the fact that they have reopened, I felt like to them, it was like this joyous sort of reaction to welcoming in visitors, even at the same time that they're like, yeah, this is nothing like what it looked like a year ago. And even Max uh, Holline at the Met had said, you know, programming for at least the next 18 to 24 months is going to be very, very different. And he predicted that it could be at least two or three years where you see the same level of of tourists returning to what they had, you know, pre-pandemic levels. I mean, speaking of this joyous reaction, we had a really funny article on Artnet News that was a a photo series of visitors coming to these reopened museums. And and they, they looked like they had been lost at sea for years and we're finally on dry land and we're like kissing the soil. <laughs> well, you know, and, um, and Max actually addressed that too, where it's, where it's one of those things where maybe you don't realize how much an institution like the Met or the Whitney or the Frick means to you until it's gone for five or six months. And of course, we as New Yorkers are, are very spoiled that way with the level of culture and, and art that we have available to us on a daily basis. So, you know, maybe that's a good wake up call. Maybe that's a good lesson. Well, I think that's a, a perfect point to transition from museums to art galleries. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Eileen. And Tim Schneider, our resident art business editor. Are, are you there? I am here, Andrew Goldstein. So Tim, it's been a wild couple of months. And as hard as it is, can you think back to the end of March and what, you know, was happening in the gallery world and what was kind of predicted or expected to happen to galleries. So if we're going back to really the beginning of the gallery sector shutdown in New York, the key date is March 12th. That was really the first date where significant galleries in the city started announcing of their own volition because at that point, As I think Eileen said in the previous segment, there was no uh, direct order from Governor Cuomo to shut down non-essential businesses. That didn't come until about 10 days later. Hmm. So March 12th, you had galleries just 
sort of trying to take cues from what they thought was safe and what they thought wasn't. And I had the bright idea to start this coronavirus cancellation watch post where we were trying to track who was shutting down in real time. And if you look back at this list, and I remember experiencing this in real time as I was trying to keep this list updated with some of our colleagues, is that it very quickly accelerated from this point of, oh, okay, this place is closed, this place is closed. Then it became a steady stream. Then it was just out of control. It's like trying to drink from a fire hose. And there was just no realistic way to keep this thing updated. And it just became clear almost in an ambient way there are more people who are shut down now than are still operating. This thing no longer makes sense. Hmm. And then the story became which ones were still open. Yeah, right. In a matter of, honestly, less than a week, the proportion just flipped on its head. Hmm. And then you moved into this phase of, okay, well, if galleries can't be open anymore, then what do they do? And that started this huge push to try to get online in a pronounced way. There was this real push toward creating these online viewing rooms that were at least uh, some kind of primitive digital storefront that they could have that they could potentially offer works through. But that became the only thing to do as of late March. You know, the Met was the bellwether for the museum sector in terms of closing. I think that the bellwether in the gallery sector in terms of the dawning realization that this was going to be a really big deal was when Art Basel canceled its March Hong Kong edition. And this is because the art fairs are a huge, if not main source of revenue for galleries all over the world. Well, Art Basel Hong Kong is an interesting case because, I mean, that cancellation actually happened in February. And at that point, there was still this really literally oceanic separation between what was happening in Asia and what was happening in the West. Like there was still a belief when Art Basel Hong Kong was canceled that the coronavirus was really a problem that had begun in Asia and might not spread further than Western Europe and the U.S. would be safe. And this is really signified by the fact that between March 4th and March 8th, we had an art fair week here. The Armory Show was up. The Independent Art Fair was up. Some other smaller satellite fairs that run during that time. All of those proceeded and, and did their full run. I mean, Andrew, you and I were at the Armory Show together mm -hmm. on Saturday, March 7th, recording a podcast, incidentally. Yeah. And to think that at that point, people were certainly getting nervous, I think. But there was still uncertainty as to how bad this was really going to be. And then in the span of two weeks after that, it just became clear that the answer was really bad, like really, <laughs> really bad. And it forced people to reevaluate how they were going to proceed as, as an art dealer. We were talking about all these polls that were taking place during the pandemic. And there was one that said that a third of Los Angeles's art galleries expected to close in 2020. And then a little while later, I think that expanded out to being like a third of galleries writ large were expected to close. What happened? Well, I don't think that we have a great answer to that question. I think it, you can get fooled looking into what's happened now in late September of 2020. And you can look around and you can say, well, that sucked, but most of these galleries managed to 
weather the storm and get through it somehow. They lost some staff. Sales are down significantly. But we haven't really seen that many galleries of real consequence close their doors. Like the most significant closure that we've seen was Gavin Brown's enterprise. Mm -hmm. And he shut down his major gallery in Harlem and became a partner at Gladstone Gallery. But apart from that, uh, you've had some pretty significant layoffs at some of the other bigger shops. For instance, David Zwerner laid off 20% of its workforce in early July. Pace laid off fewer than 20 people in late July. And some other smaller spaces were shedding staff along the way too, but those galleries didn't close. So I think that can be tempting to look around and say, well, looks like we got through it. And in reality, I don't think that just looking at those obvious signs necessarily communicates the full reality of what might be happening under the surface. Here I want to just break in and say that you, you coined a term, ghost galleries. What, what are ghost galleries, aside from sounding spooky and cool? <laughs> well, I guess they are spooky. I'm not sure if they're cool. The simplest way to say it is this. When you start looking at the full regime of what being a small business in New York required you to do at that point, you get into a lot of gray area. For instance, commercial evictions are still not allowed in New York. If you Say you hadn't been paying your rent as a gallery for multiple months. You couldn't actually be kicked out of the space by law. So that obviously is going to prevent some galleries from clearly shutting down. That has been pushed back again and again, and now that moratorium ends on October 20th. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I think at the time that I wrote the column, it had been pushed to August 20th, and then it became September 20th. Now it's October 20th. The point is that you theoretically at this point could have been not paying rent for six months and there's not a damn thing that your landlord could have done about it. So you take that as one data point. If you had staff, you've probably furloughed them or laid them off entirely. Then when you look at this period between March and late June, which is when galleries first started to, to reopen, there was no way that you could put on physical shows. Art fairs weren't happening. And so it also meant that you weren't paying the expenses that went along with those things. You weren't paying exhibitor fees to show at art fairs. You weren't paying fees to ship in new artworks, install them, photograph them to market for the show. Then when the show was over, deinstall them, crate them up, ship them back out or store them. Like none of that stuff was happening. It's entirely possible that you could just be effectively dead, but... No one knows unless you actually tell on yourself and say, oh, by the way, we're out of business. Hmm. And I think most small business owners really believe in the thing that they're doing, and they want to believe that they'll figure out a way, if they can just keep the clock running, that they can rescue themselves. I think hmm. that you could skate by on that ghost gallery premise through the summer, certainly. But once we got into September and it became clear that galleries, for the most part, could be open... I think we're now at the point where if you're still shuttered, you're still just effectively only operating online, I think that that's a real trouble spot regardless of whether or not you've technically got another three weeks or so until your landlord can kick you out. Hmm. 
now the galleries are actually opening. And how has this been possible? How have the galleries managed to pull this off safely? The interesting thing about this to me is that it's really reflective of the scattershot messaging that we as Americans have been getting throughout the pandemic. When I started interviewing dealers for this story that I wrote about the process of galleries reopening, one of my main questions was, where were you going for guidance on safety? Were you looking at CDC reports? Were you talking to other dealers? Were you getting information from, say, if you if you were part of the new Art Dealers Alliance or the um, Art Dealers Association of America? Were you getting information from them? And the answer was really a mix of, of all of those different things. Like everybody just had to figure out their own answer for what they thought made sense. Hmm. And what seems to have emerged despite the, I think, diversity of different resources that people were looking at is something of a consensus. So every gallery that I spoke to for this story and every gallery that I've seen operating since, they all require masks. They all have hand sanitizer available at the front desk. They all have capacity limits in terms of the number of people who can be in the space at the same time. They say that they'll enforce social distancing practices if necessary. And then the appointment policy varies as well. Like there are still some places that are appointment only viewing. There are others that will be appointment recommended where you can, if you want to make sure there's not going to be another person in the gallery who's acting like a jackass, you can just reserve your own spot and know that you'll be safe in there with yourself or a guest maybe that you bring. And then there's just there's a variety of places that are just, no, we're, we're open. Gallery hours are 10 to 6 on these days. And come on in. And if we get to a, a point where we feel like it's getting dicey as a number of people in here, we'll just ask anybody else who wants to come in to wait outside until the people who are in here now leave. And it seems to be working pretty well for the most part. So... Nearly 75 galleries have opened in New York City earlier this month. And when I think of a successful Lower East Side gallery tour, I picture squeezing my way into some sweaty box that's totally crammed with people where there's like a, a tub of, of beer in the back and you know everybody's kind of screaming at each other to be heard. What does it actually feel like to go to a gallery opening? Yeah, so I think that another one of these points of consensus that has emerged is that the opening reception is effectively not really a thing anymore. <laughs> it, it used to be, as you're describing, I think, accurately in a lot of ways, like you would encounter that because the quote-unquote opening would be Friday or Thursday night from 6 to 8 p.m. or something like that. And if you wanted to see the show and be one of the first people to see it, that was when you went. Now galleries have, for the most part, just decided that the opening day of a new show is a full day. The gallery is there all day and available to you from, again, like 10 to 6 or whatever their normal hours are. Um, they're not usually offering refreshments of any kind. It's much less of a social event. It's just like, hey, yeah, a new show is up. If you want to come see it, great, we're here. But the celebratory social milieu that floated around that kind of event in the past just mostly doesn't exist. And there was a, a gallerist that I talked to named Kendra Jane Patrick who 
She's actually an itinerant gal, or she doesn't have a permanent space. She just does pop-up shows or collaborative shows. Uh-oh. She's doing a collaborative online show with Metro Pictures, and it's all based around this idea of, like, what does an exhibition become if you don't have an opening anymore? Hmm. Which is a really, I think, thought-provoking question to ask, because so much of what the art world is ends up being those conversations you have with somebody that you run into at the opening, or if you end up seated next to them, or if you get invited to the post-show dinner, these sometimes sweaty, kind of drunk, sometimes drug-addled, free-flowing discussions that can turn into business opportunities or creative opportunities or whatever else. And if you just take that out of the equation, you just reduce it back to, hey, we're a gallery, we have a great artist here, we're presenting a show for the public to come and contemplate it really flips the entire experience on its head in a way. When, when you talk about this kind of distillation down to basic principle, you know, there, we spend most of our time on the internet, you know, looking at art, talking about art, writing about art. And, and, and it's actually become something where engaging with art in person has become the rarest way of encountering an artwork. Well, I think that in general, what the entire shutdown experience has forced people to do is reevaluate how flexible they are. And I think that that's extended to this hybrid online offline existence that people are still very much trying to figure out. I think people are just exploring in a way that they didn't feel compelled to, or maybe they didn't even really have the headspace to do when we just had this constant churn of art fair after art fair after art fair, where they just felt like they were running as fast as they could at all times and didn't even really have the the time or the wherewithal to step back and say, hey, does this really make sense? Is there maybe a better way that we could be doing this? And now the shutdown has really forced people to have the time to reevaluate and maybe try some things that they wouldn't otherwise. And it's still very much an open question, I think, on a lot of levels as to what precisely comes out of this. But I'm at least cautiously optimistic that more people are going to try more hopefully interesting things than they would have otherwise. Well, I think if, if the art world could get together and and as a community decide to ban air kisses, <laughs> that it could be one of the one of the most transformative steps <laughs> to to getting us out of this pandemic. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show, Tim. That's it for this week's episode of the Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider, who uh, you just heard from a second ago, and Caroline Goldstein, and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.